All right, good morning, Hallows Church. How are you doing this Sunday? Good to see you. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here with our church, uh, up in the Edmonds Expression primarily, but it's always a joy and a privilege to be back with you here in Wallingford in this way as we open our Bibles together and explore this text that Jesse just read for us a moment ago. Uh, Before we dive into that passage, though, I'd like to share a story with you. It's a parable of sorts, really. And it's a story about an old man, and this old man, he lived in a small, remote uh, village. And each and every day, this man had to walk quite some distance down to a nearby stream. And he had to do this in order to collect enough water to kind of get him through the day. And the man, he had two large clay pots that he used for this purpose. They had these handles on them, and he used them to carry the water Uh, back to his cottage from the stream, and he would hang these uh, clay pots on this long pole, on either side of this long pole, and then he would carry that pole with the waters, uh, with the buckets full of water kind of balanced on his back each day from the stream all the way back to his home. Now, one of these clay pots, it turns out, had some cracks in it, and as a result, it leaked. And so by the time the man made it from the stream, Back to his house, this cracked clay pot was only about half full. And so what this meant, of course, is that each day the man returned home with only one and a half pots of water instead of two. Now, this cracked clay pot, over time, became aware of its own flaws and became discouraged that it could only accomplish half of what it had been designed to do and what this man expected and and needed it to do. And so one day when the man had made his walk down to the stream to get water, the cracked clay pot said something to this man. It said, I want to, I want to apologize to you, sir. I am, I am ashamed of myself. The, and the man said, whatever for, what do you, whatever do you have to be ashamed of? And the pot said this. He said, I have all of these cracks and flaws. And as a result, for all of this time, I have been unable to meet your expectations and your needs each day. In fact, all I've done is is leak and let you down. Now the man, he thought for a moment and then he kind of smiled and he said, as we return home today, I want you to pay careful attention to what you see growing along the path as we go. And as they went up the hill, the cracked clay pot noticed for the very first time many very bright and very beautiful flowers growing along the side of the path. And when they reached his house, the man said to the clay pot, did you notice that All of those beautiful flowers were growing only on one side of the path and not the other. And then the man said this, he said, I have always known about your flaws, but I decided to take advantage of them. He said, you see, I planted seed on your side of the path only, and then each and every day as we walk back from the stream, you have watered those seeds and those flowers for me. And because of that, and only because of that, he said, I've been able to enjoy for some time now at my table and in my home very colorful and very fragrant flowers more beautiful than I have ever seen. I have always known about your flaws, the man said, but rather than discard you because of them, I chose to take advantage of them. And that's pretty interesting, isn't it? And as we explore this passage today, I think there's an interesting sense in which we're going to hear the Apostle Paul saying something similar about us and how, about how God intends to use us, not because of us, but in spite of us, in spite of our shortcomings and our flaws. In fact, Paul is going to show us here, I think, that God can actually take advantage of them as we, as we cooperate with him. 
The title of today's message is The Power of the Gospel, because today's passage, it is about power to be sure. It's about a surpassing power, it said in verse 7. And so I want to talk about that today, the power of God, the power of the gospel. What does it look like? What should it look like to have the power of God at work, at work in our lives? Now, to be sure, the power of God is understood in different ways by different people. Many people, I think, assume that if there is a God and if you have the power of God working in your life, it will will show you will be happy, you will have health, you will have wealth, you will be living your best life now, being your best self now. But that's not at all what this passage here teaches, and that's not what the Bible as a whole teaches either. Today's passage, it is about power, to be sure. It's about God's power, but it's also about weakness. It's about our weakness and how, as Christians, we we do need to understand the interplay between the two if we're ever going to live out an, an empowered life. And so let's talk about this for a bit, the power of the gospel. I'd like to explore this text under three headings today, the principle of gospel power, the paradox of gospel power, and the practice of gospel power. First, the principle of power. Paul starts off here by by declaring something about the power, this power that God has leveraged for you and I in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, the first thing we see here as Paul begins talking about the power of the gospel is that he he refers back to what the Bible in the very beginning had to say about the very beginning. Look again at verse 6. He says, For God who said... The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says. And when Paul in verse 6 refers to God speaking and saying, let light shine out of darkness, he's, he's referring to the very beginning of everything. He's referring to the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and what it says there. And what it says there in the opening verses of Genesis is that in the, in the beginning, there was nothing but darkness. There was uh, no form or void. But then in verse 3, chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, we're told that God spoke into that darkness. And he said, he said, let there be light. And by his word and by the power of the word of God, there was light. And that light penetrated the, the darkness, we were told. And God, back in Genesis, as as the verses follow there, we're told that uh, God proceeded to continue speaking into existence, all things, not not some things, but all things, everything as we know it, including man and woman in his own image. And when God was done, and when he looked out at all that he had created, we're told that he saw that it was good. In fact, he said that it it was very good. Now, we know, of course, that things did not stay good, Things went very bad very quickly, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve decided that God was, was holding out on them. And so they did what they were told not to do. And as a result, the human condition, it was, it was fractured in that moment and darkness has pervaded the human heart and the human race ever since. And what Paul is saying here in verse 6 is that the very same power, that very same creational power that spoke light into darkness at the very beginning has now shown his light into the darkness of your heart and and my heart. And now why would he do that? Well, Paul tells us here, he says, so that you and I are able to know and we're able to 
to see, verse 6, the glory of God in the face of, of Jesus Christ. And so in the first instance, God's power was leveraged to initiate creation itself as we know it. And in the second instance, God's power has been leveraged in and through Jesus to initiate a new creation in every human heart that puts their faith in Jesus. And that's why Paul, in the very next chapter of this letter, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so, friends, in a world where darkness seems to have the upper hand, Paul is reminding us here that only the power of God could ever have broken through the darkness of, of our hearts to reach us and to redeem us, and that is exactly what he has done in the gospel. But as Paul continues here, he's going to teach us in this passage that we need to be thinking rightly about, about this power, about God's power, and how it actually operates in our lives. And one of the main reasons this can be a challenge, I think, one of the main reasons why the principle of gospel power can be so easily misunderstood, I think, is, is that the way the world sees power, the way the gospel sees power, could not be any more different. In fact, this is one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in the first place, because there were many among them who were confused and concerned when they looked at Paul and all the things that were going on in his life. The Corinthians, they looked at Paul, and from their perspective, the only thing that was all that remarkable about Paul was all the, all the terrible things that kept happening to him. Surely, they thought, if he was really a messenger of God, empowered by God, why was his life the way that it, that it was? Paul talked often about God's power working in him and through him. But here's the thing that many of the Corinthians were, were wondering. If God is so powerful and he is truly with Paul and for Paul and, and using Paul, why, why are there so many trials and troubles and tragedies always taking place in Paul's life? So this is what they were wondering and talking about, and Paul knew this. He actually writes about this in another part of this same letter as sort of a response to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about all the struggles. He talks about being stoned. He talks about the, the mobbings and the muggings and the imprisonment. He talks about being starving, being slandered, being shipwrecked. Paul suffered in some extreme ways in his efforts to advance the gospel. And the Corinthians were wondering, how could God be with this man when all these terrible things keep happening to him? And of course, if we're going to be honest here at times, we can't help but ask some of these same sorts of questions as we live out our own lives, right? When you go into a season of life where one thing after another keeps going wrong, when you feel like you've hit bottom and then you find out there's still lower to go, it's hard, it's hard not to look at your life and and wonder, can this be right? Is this right? God, um, where are you? You begin wondering, right? Maybe, maybe God is not so good or, or not so powerful, or maybe he doesn't care, or maybe he's angry at me. But whatever the case, surely it does not seem that he is with me or for me because of these things that are happening to me. I think we've all been there, right, at some level. If you haven't if you haven't, you will, because the truth is our hearts naturally move in those directions, those sorts of directions when life begins to overwhelm us. 
And so how do you ordinarily relate to God and respond to God when life seems to be getting the better of you? Paul's response here to all of this, I think, is quite interesting, and I think it's quite instructive for us, and I hope, I hope it will shape and inform how we view this and some of our own responses when life comes at us in, in difficult ways. Very interestingly, I think, what we're going to hear Paul saying is that, the, that his struggles and his suffering in his life, they are not in any way a denial of the gospel or a denial of God's power working in him. Rather, Paul would say they're actually a confirmation. They are a confirmation of his participation in the gospel and a, a confirmation that he's living his life, living a life that is modeled after the gospel. The Corinthians, they saw Paul's struggles and suffering as a very poor endorsement for Christianity. And often the watching world does too when it looks at some of us. But Paul says in reply, he says, you're missing, you're missing the point. And that's precisely one of the things Paul is going to explain a bit more for us here as we move into our second point, and that is the paradox of gospel power. In verse 6, remember, Paul said that God's power, God's light has shown in our hearts that they have been gifted to us, right, in the gospel. And then look at what he says in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. And so Paul is going to paint for us here a very interesting picture. He's using this interesting metaphor. He says that as followers of Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of, of clay. Now, one thing that's quite clear here is that God is the treasure, right? He's the light. That's what Paul, that Paul is referring to there. And he's, he's given us himself. He's given us his presence and his power by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives. And, and if God is the treasure, that would necessarily make us the, the jars of clay, right, that, that carry this light and who carry this, this treasure. And I need to tell you, when Paul refers to us in this way as jars of clay, I can say to you with some confidence that he does not intend for this to be a compliment. You see, clay... Especially back then, it was not the strongest of materials. Clay was often pretty fragile. It could be quite weak and quite brittle. And so one thing that seems clear is that Paul is not presenting himself or presenting us as some sort of strong or valuable vessels on our own when he chooses this, this metaphor. He does not present himself. He does not present us as these exquisitely crafted Greek urns or as goblets with intricate gold inlays like those that existed back then and were extremely valuable back in that day. He instead compares us to ordinary and unremarkable and fragile vessels made out of ordinary and unremarkable materials, clay, which is essentially made of soil or, or dirt. But then, then Paul tells us why he says this. Look at verse 7 again. He tells us why God would, would put his power and his presence in ordinary and fragile vessels like us. In verse 7, he says it's to show something, doesn't he? It's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and, and not to us. God puts his power and his presence in these fragile vessels so that when he is, when he is working in our lives, others can't help but see, see the treasure and not the fragile jar, right? So that others might be 
impressed with him and not, not impressed with us. And let's be clear, as we talk about this, the equation for this is not my weakness plus, plus God's power equals, equals my power. That is not what Paul is saying. God's power in our lives does not come from our pursuit of power, but rather from our surrender of it and our pursuit from our pursuit of God himself instead, really. We do not become powerful in the gospel. We remain weak. We do not grow in power. We actually grow in weakness. We move from weakness to weakness so that we can remain vessels who rightly display his power as he leads us through this life. And very interestingly, Paul says, in a sense, I am most effective when I am least reliant on my own power. And Paul elaborates on this some at the end of this letter to the Corinthians. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that God's power Get this, God's power is made perfect, he says, in my my weakness. And then in the very next breath, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. Now, one of the things I think Paul is saying here is that acknowledging our own weakness and having really a humble acceptance of it is is very often the necessary precondition for God's power to to be made manifest in, in our lives. Because as we see ourselves honestly in this way and as we look to God as our source of power rather than ourselves, we can withstand far more pressure from the outside than anyone might think if, if they're only looking at the fragile, fragile jar. Look at the way that Paul says this works in verses 8 and 9. He gives us these four uh, consecutive and sort of parallel paradoxes, let's call them, that each kind of illustrate Paul's experience of what he's talking about here. Namely, that our Weakness, as we acknowledge it and even embrace it, invites God's strength and God's power into our lives. Listen to what Paul says in verses 8 and 9 again. He says, he says, we're afflicted but not crushed. One commentator paraphrased this, we are squeezed but not squashed. Paul says, we're perplexed but not driven to despair. <clears throat> he says, we're persecuted but not forsaken. He says we're struck down, but we're, we're not destroyed. And so as you hear those words, there's a certain buoyancy to, to Paul's outlook here. There's a certain uh, confidence in these words. There's a certain power, I would say, that is flowing from this picture that Paul is painting for us. But I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but when I find myself in the middle of an overwhelming season or situation in life, I don't always feel so confident or buoyant or, or powerful at all. As we talked about earlier, it can be easy for our hearts to begin to wonder and to uh, begin to to wander when when things get hard and to begin to ask questions of God and about God. But as I studied this text this week, I actually found something quite encouraging to me in all this. Now, these words in verses 8 and 9, they do sound pretty triumphant. They sound confident. It sounds, sounds like nothing could get Paul down. But if you look back at chapter 1 of this very same letter to the Corinthians, Paul did not 
sound so confident there when he was talking about something else, some of his other struggles that he had in Asia when he was traveling there. And we don't know exactly what happened there in Asia, but listen to what Paul said there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He said, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, Paul says. Now, in the present passage, in chapter 4, Paul says we're under pressure, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not, he says, driven to despair. But then when you read chapter 1, he says things were so bad in Asia that we despaired of life itself. And so he says, here I don't despair, and there he says I despaired. And so, so which is it? Is Paul contradicting himself here? One commentator said this is not a contradiction as much as it is a uh, psychological realism. You see, what may be going on here is that when you are actually going through significant suffering in your life, you do feel like you're coming completely undone. And clearly Paul did. He said, I despaired of life itself in in chapter 1. But when we get here to chapter 4, you see, Paul is using the benefit, I think, of hindsight and perspective to say that even though it felt at the time like he was being destroyed, even though he did despair in that situation, he also says, I can look back after, after the fact and see that, See that God was sustaining me through it all. At times, to be sure, when you are going through it, you may feel crushed, you may may feel abandoned, you may feel destroyed, but Paul is reminding us here that you are not. Paul is reminding us here to keep, keep our perspective. He's reminding us, I think, that whatever pressure is applied from the outside, whatever trouble you may be going through today, and however much it may feel like that pressure is truly going to crush you and is crushing you, you can trust that that pressure will be met in every way by God's sustaining power pushing back from from within. Paul, he did not reach down deep and suck it up and become a man of strength and courage on his own. It It was never his strength to begin with. Rather, Paul's weakness in the midst of his struggles and his humble acknowledgement of that weakness would often become the occasion for God's power to show up and to to show out, even when Paul wasn't always feeling it at the time. He didn't always see it or feel it at the time, but he could often see it and recognize it afterwards. Now, our third and final point has to do with the practice of power. What does it look like, practically speaking, to show a watching world the power of God working in our lives. Do you ever think about that? In verses 10 and 11, Paul says this. He says, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. Now, as Christians, we... We identify, right, with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think in some ways Paul is alluding to that as he pins these words. But then Paul, Paul concludes this passage, I think, with an unexpected twist in what he says next. Now, based on what you just heard and what he just said, you might expect Paul to say in the final verse of this passage that death is at work in us, but 
at the same time, life is at work in us too, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. In verse 12, surprisingly, Paul says this. He says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul says, death is at work in me, and as a result, life is at work in you. And friends, this is very important for us. There is a sense in which what Paul is giving us here is the very principle of the cross itself. Do you see that? Death leading to life. I think Paul would say that is where the power of the gospel is is to be found. That's how we need to model our lives. That's how the life of Jesus The power of God will be made visible in us to those around us by following that same principle, by dying dying to ourselves for the benefit of other, other people. Jesus, to be sure, sets the pace for us in this in the most profound of ways, right? By by dying in our place for our sins so that we might be put in a right relationship with our with our God. And Paul certainly sets the pace for us too in this. Paul was He was repeatedly forfeiting his own life and his own interests for the sake and the benefit of the people around him. He was continually and repeatedly giving up and giving over his life so that others might find life and flourish in it. And that, friends, is one of the most important ways that we can put the power of God, the power of the gospel, on display to a watching world by by dying to ourselves, by continually dying to our self-centeredness, by dying to our our self-importance, by dying to our our self-righteousness, by dying to our pride and our arrogance, and by sacrificially serving others rather than selfishly serving ourselves. And there is a sense in which Jesus says something similar to this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. There Jesus says, he says, whoever finds his life or thinks he can find it on his own is going to lose it, he says. And whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. So think about that. You need to lose yourself, Jesus says, in order to, in order to find yourself. Now, I spent my whole life trying to find myself. I could never get there on my own. I tried. I tried really hard, but I could not get there by serving myself and serving my my own agenda. I could not find myself by pouring myself out into my education or my career or, or even my family. I could not get there by pursuing success or power or parties or pleasure. I tried. I tried for a long time, but eventually I hit I hit the wall. I reached a dead end. I was searching for myself when what I needed more than anything was to lose myself and to die to myself. Jesus says, instead of trying to find yourself by focusing on yourself, you need to get outside yourself. You need to get over yourself, and you need to start finding and focusing on on other selves other than yourself. Dying to self, friends, it it is the most glorious defeat you can imagine. 
And it is how you and I live a life modeled after the gospel and a life that displays the power of God by forfeiting our own lives in order that others may find and flourish in theirs. Fundamentally, that is how a watching world can see. That is how you and I can show a watching world that there is a power at work in our lives that belongs to God and does not belong to us. As you and I, as we put others first, as we count others more significant than ourselves, do you know that we're displaying to a watching world a power that does not belong to us? As you and I, as we love our neighbors in the same sorts of ways we love ourselves, and we do love ourselves, but the more we're able to break out of that natural tendency and love others in the same sorts of ways that we love ourselves, the more we are showing the world a power that does not originate with us. As you and I, as we respond with grace and forgiveness towards those who wrong us or or revile us, we are showing to the watching world a power that is not our own. Do you know, friends, that as you and I, as we face our futures and even our deaths with hope rather than fear, we are putting on display the power of God and his gospel at work in our hearts and in our lives. And these things, they are not our own doing. And so as they are happening in our lives, and I hope they are in yours, let's give credit where credit is due, and let's give glory where glory is due. The surpassing power at work within us as we live other-oriented, hopeful lives belongs entirely to him and the Holy Spirit he's given to us. It does not belong to us. Amen? And do you know another way that you and I can put God's goodness and God's power on display in our lives? By being real by being honest with ourselves and about ourselves, by not trying to present ourselves as something we are not. Let's talk again as we finish up about the fragile jars of clay. Every jar of clay, every last, every last one of us under the pressures and problems of this life have been damaged, right? Every, every jar of clay has suffered various cracks and chips and flaws in our journeys through this life, every last one of us without exception is broken and damaged in our, own, in our own ways. But I think one thing Paul is saying here is that we no longer need to uh, despise those flaws or, or despair over them. We can be honest about them, right? God already knows about them and he is willing to use them to his advantage if we'll let him. But we don't always let him so well. We don't always cooperate so well in this. We often actually, I think, get in the way of this. Because at times, we don't like to seem weak. We don't like to seem broken or flawed to people around us. And so what happens is we often go about our lives trying to hide our weaknesses, trying to cover up the cracks, trying to clean up and patch up the the chips and the flaws in the jar. Rather than accepting and admitting our own brokenness, we instead try to cover these things up. We try to present ourselves to the world as Christians who have it all together, who have it all figured out. But I think that Paul would say that if we're not careful with this, we will will dampen the light that wants to shine through us. 
think Paul is revealing for us an important part for us to play here and not, not presenting ourselves to, to others as something other than the fragile vessels that we are. Because here, here's the thing, very often, very often it is through our honesty and our humility about our brokenness and about our weakness that God's light shines through us to those around us in the most genuine and meaningful ways. And so if we think about it in this way as Christians, the cracks in the jars of clay are no longer to be ashamed of or covered up. In fact, they serve, they serve a critical purpose, I think. If you and I, if we're the jars of clay, then the light, the treasure within us, it really has, has no way to get out, does it? And to reach others and to penetrate the darkness except through, except through those cracks in the jar. We do not need to cover up or clean up the cracks in the jar. We do not necessarily need to despise or despair over them either. Instead, we need to accept and acknowledge our own brokenness and allow God, allow God to use it as the channels through which he might show himself to others as we love and serve people around us in humble and helpful ways. God not only uses us in spite of our brokenness, at times he shines most brightly through that brokenness as we humbly let him. And so friends, as we engage one another, as we engage this community and this city around us, let us take care not to present ourselves as Christians who have it all together. Let's be willing to present ourselves as the weak, fragile vessels that we are in desperate need of the glorious treasure that we carry so that the world might see that the grace and power that is working in our lives belongs entirely to him and not to us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather freely, worship you and sing songs to you and encourage one another, God. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that they are living and active and profitable for us. God, would they be that for us today? God, would you make us a people who do not seek to gain power, but who are willing to surrender it for the sake of others, just as Jesus did for us? Would you make us a people who do not despair over our weakness, but who humbly embrace it and allow you to use it as the means by which your power may be visible to others. God, would all that we do show to a watching world that the gospel, that power, gospel power at work in our lives belongs to you and not to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>